Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Junk Food Cinema. Hi, this is Dick Miller. You're listening to Junk Food Cinema on Film School Rejects. Who are these guys? In a time before Earth, before the sun, before the light of the stars, when all was darkness and chaos, the old gods, the forgotten gods, ruled the darkness. What was theirs now belongs to the world of light and substance. And the old gods, the rightful masters, are jealous, watching mankind with a hatred that is boundless as the stars, with plans for the destruction of man that are beyond imagining. But it turns out that plan revolves heavily around the new flavor of Mountain Dew, so I guess we'll take our chances. Hey, everybody, welcome to Junk Food Cinema! With the longest intro we may have had ever. You know, it was either that or you talking about dick slinging for another five minutes, so <laughs> I made an editorial call. You guys are cuddling over there on the couch. You're canoodling. Canoodling. Uh, this week's Junk Food Pairing, Snicker Canoodles. Uh, I am Brian Salisbury. He is some asshole named C. Robert Cargill, uh, the god of black coffee. And we are joined... Uh, and Scotch. And Scotch. And we are joined by a very special guest, a man you have heard on this show before, um, from Modern Rogue and the author of the Black Goat Motorcycle Club, the god of Taco Bell himself, mm. Mr. Jason Murphy. That's me. Yes. Hi. Murphy. Hello. We, you know what? We've got an episode. Uh, it's next week, right? Yes. That we thought about having you on for where we're having uh, your partner in crime, Brian Brushwood, on. Oh, yeah. But it's RoboCop. Oh, right. Which, of course, the last the last line of that fucking movie is... Murphy. Murphy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great that we have back-to-back rogues. We have both of the modern rogues in back-to-back weeks. Indeed. We, uh, <laughs> we're the classic rogues. You guys are the modern rogues. Oh, you guys are rogues, too? I mean, have you listened to this show? No. Did you listen to his dick slinging conversation? Try not to. Good, j- good job. <laughs> Couldn't avoid my dick slinging conversation. If you would like to hear more of these conversations, which at this point I'm not sure why you would, you can go to iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to really go in deep, you can go to Libsyn.com and hear our whole catalog beyond the 100 episode threshold that iTunes affords you. You can also follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema and like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. If you have not gotten enough and you want to make sure that the slanging continues, patreon.com slash Junk Food Cinema. Little as $4 a month, lots of bonus content just for you that you get to hear all that good stuff. Um, so Summer of 87 is rolling along and we arrive at a movie that we have been wanting to cover for a long time, a movie that all of us in this room really love, but was not necessarily one of the marquee movies of the year. No, it was an interesting film in that it was a $2.5 million Canadian uh, horror movie that was one of those little movies that could, that opened up on the same weekend as a movie we probably won't cover this summer. Nope. 
well, I don't know. I mean, I have had a couple friends who have said, you know, this movie deserves a revisit, and maybe it does. But one of the biggest bombs of summer of 87 was a movie called Ishtar. <laughs> and it was a notorious bomb. And what was so amazing about that weekend was it was Ishtar opening against this little movie called The Gate. There is a passageway to the most evil place you can imagine. A gate behind which the demons wait to take back what was once theirs. And now, someone has opened the gate. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm calling the police. You got demons. Demons? What kind? They have opened the gate. It's not too late. And in a number of markets, the gate outperformed Ishtar. And so the when you didn't write a piece on Monday morning about how bad Ishtar bombed, you wrote a piece about, hey, look at what happens when you make a little movie that could. Now, a movie that seems to care. These pieces were printed in the paper version of the internet, which I believe was called print? The Is newspapers. Right? Newspapers, yes. And magazines. And Ishtar was a $30 million movie, which in 1987 was a big deal. It was a lot. Yeah. yeah. And it had marquee stars. It had Warren Beatty. That was it like had Dustin Hoffman. $5 million more than Over the Top. That was, no, it was $5 million more than they paid Stallone for Over the Top. <laughs> <laughs> like the entire budget of the movie was probably only a couple million more than they paid Stallone to be in that movie. Uh, go back, uh, summer of 86, right? Or was it, was that this summer? I'm that was this summer. This is summer of 87. Shit. What episode are we on? One billion. Let's be honest here. We planned summer of 87 and then we saw how great 87 was in terms of summer. It's one of those great summers that gets ignored. And so I think we literally have planned like five months of summer 87 and we're still cutting things. We're still like, can we find room for inner space? Can we slip? And people are like, how could you skip inner space? It's like. Because we kind of got to talk about the gate, you know? <laughs> now, like, now, did the gate come out in the summer? Yeah. Yes, it did. Okay, for some reason, I just remembered it as, like, spring or something like no, that. No, it is. But that's my cloudy, like, It is know, a summer of 87. Official release date, May 15th, 1987. Okay, so, so school wasn't out yet. School was not out yet. That so is correct. That's why I remember it, because I remember talking to my buddies about it at uh, like the my like fifth grade track meet or whatever the one track and field you day never day. ran what? no but no but yeah. the whole school went to track and field day right or <laughs> or did you actually run oh wait no i did really yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, like, not that I don't think you can run, but I mean, like... It just, well, this was, like, like fifth grade and, like, junior oh, sure, high or everything. Sure. I was, yeah, actually very athletic. And then... Surprise! The Taco Bell happened. <laughs> and then Dungeons and Dragons happened. The taconing. <laughs> um, no, but I actually didn't get to experience this movie until I moved to Austin and rented it from our, one of our local video stores, based entirely upon the cover art, which is fucking awesome and looks like... A, it's like an album cover that I should have owned. And and I watched it and I was like, this is really, really good. Um, and I remember thinking that at the time and then revisiting it for this episode and going, oh, no, this is even better than I remember. So I'm super excited to talk about this. If you're not familiar with this movie, I don't blame you necessarily. It's not really that easy to find. Um, no. we, we were just talking about 
uh, the hoops we had to jump through, and we should probably coach our listeners on how they can find it. Yeah, right? no, yeah. Lionsgate put it out on. Uh, they did a DVD release like a decade ago for like the twentieth anniversary of this. That is correct, and that's where you're going to find some special materials floating around the internet. It's well enough that one of those movie channels that. Uh, that uh, on YouTube that shows a clip of the movie, like the best clip, and then like tries to link you to a dozen other th- uh, clips of movies, uh, has a bunch of them online, uh, but nobody has it to stream right now. Uh, like it is not readily available. Like you guys found it I on can't a even streaming. Rent it to stream. Yeah, you, you guys uh, uh, found it on a obscure streaming service that I wasn't even able to track down over the course of my. We had to on. start digging a hole in the internet until we unearthed this movie. We played a, a, a record backwards. Yes, <laughs> to tell us where to go online. <laughs> Sacrifix. You think of our summer of '86 movie? Uh, trick uh, or treat. No, but we treat. will talk about that because there are parallels. If you go to Amazon Prime and you're like, oh, it's on Amazon Prime. No, not exactly. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you can subscribe to a secondary sub-channel called Comic-Con HQ, which is about $5 a month, or you can get a seven-day free trial. And in addition to having, like you were saying, just a bunch of videos of panels from yeah. Comic-Con. Yeah, a bunch of random SDCC-centric stuff. They also have a, an assortment of about, I don't know, like 300 movies, and one of them happens to be The Gate. So... Sign up for the trial and then and then unsubscribe once you've watched the gate. I suppose, is or how you have to or do keep track. subscribing if it's yeah, if good, it's good I don't know. or track down the physical media. Oh, yeah. you can still order, but it's I don't know what what are what are used DVDs running of the it, gate? Man, it depends. It's and that's what's crazy is you go on Amazon and if a DVD or anything is out of print. The assholes will just be like, "Oh, uh, thirty dollars now for this DVD." Yeah. It's like, "Oh, yeah. that, that's nice." I found, I <laughs> oh, found somewhere nice. it's like, "But no, 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 no." What I'm saying is like, "Battle Beyond the, Battle Stars. Beyond the Stars" is out of print again. Oh, then that'll be one hundred and fifty dollars. Fuck I remember, you! I remember specifically that one was way up there, and for a long time, Beastmaster. Yeah, was really, really difficult to track down. But, but yeah, this one's a little. It's not the easiest to find. But you it's know really what? Not. If but you want to talk about movies that are worth tracking down and actually worth scouring through the internet to find, this is one of those movies. If you've never seen this movie, you are truly missing out on one of the great crazy pants films of the 80s. And it is crazy. It is super crazy. And it's directed by Tibor Takax, who um, sounds like you're fu- you fucked up your crossword and you're not willing to admit it. He's, Racist. What? He, he's... <laughs> Racist against Hungarians. Here's here's the thing about him too. This is his most notable film. Yes, not like, The Gate Two, which not, is one of the only other films in his catalog. Not the TV movie of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, um, or any of the other family he's, films that he's done since. He's actually been working somewhat steadily. Yeah, but this is his best film, and it's his first one. Yeah. Um, what I will say though is the one person I really want to talk about on this is Michael Nankin, who wrote this. Okay. Because he that's a name you guys are gonna hear again. I have been hounding Brian about this for two and a half years. We are eventually going to do an episode on a 1980 film that Michael Nankin co-wrote and co-directed called Midnight Madness. Oh yes. What? You were Jason was literally, it's hilarious. We were at the bar the other night. He literally was telling me about Midnight Madness. And my first response was, I'm pretty sure somebody's been telling me I need to watch that movie. Yes. So here's the thing about Michael. in stereo now. so funny. So here's what's weird about this. And this is what's important before we get into this movie is 
So it's the late 70s. Michael Nankin is partners of another screenwriter slash director, and they write and direct a 40-minute short film, which you can also find on streaming. Uh, for a while, I know that Night Flight had it. I don't know if they still do. You can find bits of it on junior uh, on, on YouTube. It's called Junior High School. Hmm. And it is one of my favorite short films ever made. Really? It is it is a purely delightful junior high school musical which is clearly entirely staffed with kids who want to be actors and singers in the future and dancers. And the entire movie is a musical completely sung about all these kids who go to junior high school on their it's their very first day of junior high and it's all the 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 bullying and the dating and the you know uh heartbreak of junior high school all set to crazy music and it's all about this this party that a young paula abdul is throwing <laughs> are you being straight up right now i uh, don't tell me tell me um uh no uh <laughs> I'm going to take two steps forward and one step back. That's what this podcast does on a regular basis. Um, Paula Abdul is the only person who came out of this, but um, she's throwing a big party on Friday night. So all the girls are trying to figure out who their dates are going to be. And this one young nerd boy really wants to date the most popular girl in school. And it is just this adorable fucking hug of a movie. It is just, it's one of those things that you're watching. You're like, wow, these are kids and not all of them are talented. And then by the end, you're so charmed by all the heart and sincerity of it that you're just like, I love it. I'm going to wake my wife up and watch it with her now. And I've watched this movie like three or four times. Like I adore this thing. And on the success of that and the talent of that, those guys were given money by Disney to go and make a movie called Midnight Madness, which uh, one of those movies that doesn't have a big uh big star list there's only two people of real note in the movie uh one of which would go on to star in a little film called uh, uh American Werewolf in London and the other would be Michael J Fox uh who plays his younger brother and it is a wonderful little time capsule of a movie that did terribly. Midnight Madness did? Midnight Madness did terribly. And again, a Disney film. Yeah, and I love it. I have a, a big mad love for it. And I haven't seen it in 25 years at least. I rewatched it recently. It It's worth watching. It is a stupid fun movie. There's a I couple of... The, the Fagabifi, yes, Fagabifi. Um, that movie's junk food pairing, Fagabifi. So, um, Kovifi, uh, that was actually a, a joke for like 12 people who remember Midnight Madness, Fagabifi and Kovifi were a thing. But so, the movie did not do well. Um, the, the two directors slash writers had a huge falling out. And so Michael Nankin went off to New York and he's like, I'm going to direct an indie film. I'm going to direct it myself. I'm going to make my own movie. This will be great. And it all fell apart. And so he moved back home with his parents. He's brokenhearted. He's had a major film flop. Um, his He's 30 years old. His career's over. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he's like, fuck it. I'm going to write a spec. And I'm going to just write something for me to direct. And he wrote this super dark, super mean-spirited film about his childhood. Here's a guy who wrote a film about junior high school kids, which is sweet and lovey and just a big hug. He went on to make a film about college kids, which is goofy and fun and a lot of fun and has a lot of heart. And then you turn that coin right over and and here comes the first draft of The Gate. And The Gate was just this dark, mean-spirited movie that he planned on directing himself and 
as a chain of events happened where a producer came on and then the producer ran out of money and the producer sold off the project without telling him to a Canadian company and the Canadian company is like, yeah, we've got this Hungarian director who is going to direct it and you're not directing anymore, but we're making your movie. And he was like, fuck it. Okay. They're making my movie. And over the course, they had a big argument over to whether make this, this hard R movie that he originally read written when he's in this dark place or to tone it down and make a kids movie because they weren't comfortable with kids being in a horror film. They wanted, you know, if adults were going to see an adult movie, they didn't want to watch kids in an adult movie. So they were like, well, what if you make it as accessible, make it a PG 13 horror movie. And that's where we end up with this bizarre, wonderful piece what, called the was gate. PG 13. Yes. It's still pretty dark. It is. And it, it pulls off that thing where it's not just dark in terms of, the violence and the creepiness, it is dark in terms of the emotional manipulation that they do and the way that they really exploit um, the needs of kids and, and, and the relationships that they form and like their connections to their parents and just all of these really heavy themes that they're, they're playing with. The basic plot here is that you have, uh, you have two main kids uh, one is named Glenn and the other is named Terry. Glenn is played by Stephen Dorff. In first his role. first role. His first role and the whole time I'm watching this movie, like he, someone's going to get an angry call from Ethan Hawke and that call is going to be stop stealing my act, bro. Because throughout this whole movie, I was like, this reminds me of what 10-year-old Ethan Hawke was like in movies. It was, because that's, you know, it was, and Ethan, but Ethan wouldn't even be pissed about this because he'd still blame River Phoenix for it because River Phoenix kept stealing all of Ethan's roles. Why am I none of the gate? It's River Phoenix's fault. <laughs> River Phoenix isn't in the gate. It's still his fault. Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so Glenn, the beginning of this movie is a nightmare sequence where Glenn imagines his home is abandoned, his family is left, and his treehouse, his like last refuge the tree gets struck by lightning and knocked down and he wakes up to the sound of workmen cutting down the tree of his, you know, where his tree house is. And it's like, Oh, this movie's already pulling no punches. Like, Oh, you know, that safe haven in a tree that you is, is everything to you. We're cutting that tree down while you sleep. Yay. Um, so he and his friend in the underneath the tree, find a geode and they think it's really cool. And in the course of this, the parents are going out of town. They leave Glenn in, in the care of his older sister. The older sister's throwing a party. Glenn and Terry open the geode and somehow manage to, from the hole underneath the tree, conjure demons that they then must wrestle with throughout the rest of the movie and try to close the gate that they've opened. Go. Yeah, uh, let's talk about Terry. <laughs> I believe you mean we need to talk about we Terry. We need to talk about Terry. <laughs> By the way, Terry, based on Michael Nankin's best friend from school named Terry, who on the very first day they met, walked up to him and said, oh, you moved into that house? And he goes, yeah. He goes, oh, dude, that house is haunted. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Construction worker died halfway through building it, and they just encased him in the wall. So there's still a dead man in your wall. If you're a fan of Chekhov. You know the concept of the dead worker in the wall in the first act. <laughs> this movie, like one of the first... Chekhov's dead, uh, Chekhov's construction worker. Yeah, Chekhov's construction worker. One of the first conversations that happens in this entire movie is Glenn talking to his dad about, hey, you know, our house is haunted. Yeah, uh, one of the workers died and, and was just kind of walled up because they didn't want to stop building the house. And then it's just left. Then it's just like, yeah, that's, that's a, a real that's story a from Nankin's childhood. But 
but they treat it like that's just a, another thing that Glenn said, and the rest of the movie is like, oh, rockets and and heavy metal and and all this other stuff, and it's like, are we gonna address the weird story that Glenn told at the breakfast table like it was nothing? And sure enough. Mm. Uh, they do. Uh, quick interjection. I just noticed on your page there, February 28th, Blu-ray and DVD releases include The Gate. So Yay. not as hard uh, to get as we might have thought. But we'll have to find it. In uh, February? February of, of 2017, apparently. Yeah. Oh. So Maybe that's out. why it's not streaming is because they're still in the window. Right. So anyway, sorry. Wanted to I correct. wasn't able to find that when I Googled it on Amazon. Amazon didn't offer it to Oh, um, really? Okay. It, it could be that that didn't, because that, that, according to this, it's one of Vestron's releases, which Vestron has come back with things like Blood Diner and The Unholy and a number of other movies like that. But I don't remember them actually releasing. But they put them on Shudder, though, when they come out. Like, <laughs> the un, like I just watched The Unholy for Easter, and that was fucking great. Of course you did. <laughs> there are no That's Easter horror movies but The Unholy. I, I think The Passion of the Christ is a great Easter horror movie. Is it? Am, I, am I the only one? If you like, if you like torture porn. That shit is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Catholicism, my friend. <laughs> so anyway, Terry. 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 I mean, he just seems like this, you know, uh, like archetypal dork, right? But if you look at him, it's like, oh, here's a character that we don't actually see very often that is very realistic. Yeah. Because he's this nerd. He's clearly this ostracized, nerdy dork, right? Uh, but he's also super into metal and Satan. And yeah. like... And and he's at that age where those things start to where like a lot of nerds start to really discover I'm really into dark shit, you know, because they're trying to figure themselves what, out. What, what are you talking about, Jason? What 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 are you nerd talking about? Dark getting into dark shit. I, uh, what we have no idea what you're talking about. I was kind of like that a little bit. We were, were you, not like that at were, all. Were you not? No, no, we certainly, we certainly are not. <laughs> I, I remember the stories you told out of Odessa and you growing up. And I remember watching Terry rock out to this song and thinking, oh, this kid grows up into Jason Murphy. And then in one of, by the way, one of the greatest scenes of exposition in the 80s. Oh, yeah, no, it's amazing. But then I realized the heart of this kid rocked out. This little boy did not grow up to be Jason Murphy. This little boy grew up to be Allison Murphy <laughs> because... <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit! Like, like yeah. the, the harder he rocked out, and the more he got into it, and then like there were like costumes involved and all this other like like pageantry, and I was like, oh no no, no. this little boy grows up to be Allison Murphy. Yeah. By the way, for those of you listening, Allison Murphy is Jason's amazing creative uh, uh, flurry of energy wife, and which is pretty much how I see Terry. Also in a uh, uh, a witch themed metal band <laughs> <laughs> called. Thunder hag. If you listen real closely, you'll hear the sound of me not being surprised. Um, much like Trick or Treat, which we did cover for Summer of 86, this is a heavy metal horror film, as we've been touching on. The difference is, and this is why I love The Gate, the difference is every single other heavy metal horror movie, the metal is the instrument of the antagonist. It is yes. the way by which the evil enters our world. Yeah. This movie, this movie... The heavy metal actually equips the heroes with the tools they need to destroy the evil that sprang forth, not from 
a child's musical interest, but a child's dangerous curiosity for geology. <laughs> so really what this movie is saying is stop paying attention in science class and start listening. Rocking the fuck yeah, out. Start rocking the fuck out. Stay away from rocks. Embrace the rock. I that love it. Right. That should have been the fucking tagline right there. Because somehow this geode farts onto a magna doodle. And that gives them the secret words that they unwittingly say out loud and conjure these little demon things. I'm not even sure exactly. Like I, I did not pay attention to earth science because I didn't know that you could write with a geode, but apparently you can. And whatever you write, you should not say aloud. Well, you know, Sanskrit. you, you oh, have, okay. however, become an expert in the course. You know that you, there could be a giant geode down there that oh, you yeah. could drill into. Yeah, and if you want scientific veracity, the fucking core is the movie you should talk <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly, because you know what? Scientific veracity is expect exactly what we expect from the gate. Did you know in Texas, schools it is illegal it is illegal to use the expression common core when talking about the things that you teach to school children texas is one of the states you can't even and i think that's because of the movie the core i think they're they're tied into each other it's like we are damaging our school children by letting them think that the core is an actually scientifically accurate look movie. before we had greg abbott rick perry was our governor i think the core is what they teach in science class yeah <laughs> that in that in deep impact <laughs> and unforgiven for yeah. some reason and um, piranha. <laughs> piranha Obama's dude. America 2016. Yeah, for your That's biology class. class. Yeah, yeah, biology is piranha too, the spawning. Um, <laughs> so, but but I, I also think that the band, what was it called? Cruci Sacrifice. 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 Sacrifice, which is an based actual on, Canadian band. Yeah. Really? Based yes. on a real band called Sacrifice. Oh, see, I thought it was just the band that, that uh, Sammy Kerr went to after. <laughs> no, it's, it's based on, it's based on an actual Canadian band. And see, that's, that, that, that's what Terry is like. Terry's like a, a, ra a trash man or what? It, rag, rag, rag man. Rag man. Yeah. yeah. From, from Trick or Treat. Yes. They're really that nerd who's into metal, right? Totally. Which a lot of nerds are actually uh, super uh, into metal. Uh, you know, uh, something about an apocalypse and no false metal. No wimps. Yeah. No false metal. And no Some tiny demons biting at your ankles because that's fucking annoying. That can form together into much bigger things. Can we talk about how creepy these demons are? No. Oh, my God. No, no absolutely not. That okay. was it. That's the that's the extent okay, of us. Okay, Governor Perry. Let's, we're going to talk about it anyway. Let's 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 ignore, like, the coolest fucking thing about this the fucking movie. The core of the movie? Yeah, we're going to talk I, about it. I thought for the longest time that these little tiny demons in this were stop motion clay guys but they're not no they're dudes in rubber suits they're dudes in rubber suits and they use forced perspective to make them look tiny and it's it, oh my god surprisingly so, oh. effective it's so effective that there's a scene where terry falls into the hole and it's just one of these little things like running out and doing like a oh like a double take like there's somebody down here and that the motion that it's making and the way it stops and looks at him i will have nightmares about that for the rest of my life and it's just, it's literally just a, what are you doing here? Kind of, it's almost like they're doing an improv where it's just like, oh, you're here. Now I have to change the scene. Is there any more, any more of a concrete example of post Amblin horror like this? Like this movie is like everything you would do on a low budget to make an Amblin movie. Oh my, oh, you're pointing at me wildly. I like just highlighted the section of my notes that says it feels very Amblin at points. <laughs> 
<laughs> it feels incredibly Amblin. Like it's like it, but even the way the effects are done, it looks like it's what you make when you want to make a Spielberg film for two and a half million dollars in 1987. Like it just, the look and feel of it exists in such a small window of time. Like strangely nasty. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Way well, nastier than, than they were able to go in a movie well, but like that's, that's the, that's the thing about Spielberg is Spielberg was, was always had a lot of heart and that heart kind of took over his filmmaking for better or for worse over the years. And this is a movie made by people who are literally swinging for the fences. They are like, look, I may never get to make another movie again. Fuck it. Let's just go. I, I think it's very apropos to look at the differences in the in the in Terry and someone like Elliot and E.T. Elliot is a child of divorce where his parents don't live together anymore. Terry, his mom is dead. Like that is the difference in darkness in these two movies. And when the, there's the, the, this heartbreaking scene where oh. the demons make Terry think his mom has come back from the grave to say I love you, and she just says I love you, and he like and he embraces her and starts crying, and it's like, holy fuck, like this is a yeah. different level of dark. And then it turns out to be, oh, it's just the dog. Oh, and by the way, the dog is dead. It's like, what are you doing? And yeah, the no, dog's I... corpse ends up being a sacrifice that opens the gate. This oh. was this was the part where in the film when this came up, I was like. Oh shit! Brian's gonna be so pissed that I wanted to talk no, about this movie. No, because I think I think that um, Stephen Dorff's character actually handles it really well. Because at first he's he's traumatized, he's sad, and then the next morning Terry's like, "Man, I'm really sorry about your dog." And he's like, "Yeah, he was about 97 in dog years. They don't live much past that." So it was like, it was like this real event in the kid's life, and it didn't feel like exploitation because. The demons were exploiting Terry's love of his mom and then just like kind of rubbing it in with, you know, having the dog die. But that dead dog keeps showing up oh, as God, centerpieces was... and it's such torment for these kids. It, yeah. it was hard for me. I mean, it, they didn't kill the dog so good. The dog was old. He died and they set that up, right? Also, but they keep carting the fucking corpse around. Here's the other pass that this movie gets and not to spoil anything, but spoiler alert, the dog's alive at the end of the movie. Did you guys notice that? Yes. Oh, yeah. He's, he's alive at the end of the movie. I was watching for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that fucking dog better be alive. Yeah, because I couldn't so remember. help me. I couldn't remember. So, yeah, at the end of the movie, when they've defeated the demons, like, that, the dog's just like, hey, guys, what's going on? I've, I've been over What'd here. I miss? What'd I miss? Um, so it definitely gets a pass for that as well. But the other thing that really makes this feel like Amblin is there are barely any adults in the entire film. They The parents are at the beginning, and then they fuck off and leave... Uh, you, you know, ter- or Glenn alo- alone with his older sister, and that's the rest of the movie. And all the adults that show up from then on are threats. Yeah, they're the demons impersonating adults. Yes, yeah. and all of the, and that's one of the things that's actually like all of the kids in there. That's they're so eighties. Oh my, you know, God. it's just like. 80s as fuck. 80s all dates. Are you kidding me? Oh god! Right down to the right down to the girl with the color streak in her hair. Well, I'm sorry. Which girl with the color streak in her hair? There it is. It looks like the ocean spray, like Hawaii Five O, is going on in her bangs. Oh my god! She looked like an unintentionally serious version of Cameron Diaz's semen hair. And there's something about Mary. So it just. Oh yeah, that was there was that two year period where that was every girl in the country. And it's yeah, it's like some of the. We used to joke that there were, you would, like, it it went to a point where there would be garden weasels in girls' hair where they would (laughs) literally grow their bangs up and then 
spray them up. Yep, to where straight up, straight up. Yeah, six inches straight up up front, and then it vanished, and we were all thankful it was yeah, gone. It was so weird, but it's like that's just one of the things that's very dated about this. A lot of the we should talk about the effects because there's an oh, interesting yeah. little bit of trivia about it. But like the special effects were, uh, there's no CGI. Uh, some of them are really good, but then some of them, like particularly the lighting, because there's like a lot of fog and like really bright lighting, which to me just screams the 80s. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, when you've got like a uh, a neon light under the smoke coming out. Yes, of the, the very, hole. very. Yeah. It's like we talked about with Nomad, for those of you who've been around yeah. for a while. Like Nomad uh, is like pioneering this stuff. And then by six months later, everyone was sick of it. But people were still making movies at that point and hadn't been, gotten the memo. So, yeah, this has a lot of that. But a lot of the effects were really good, and it was done by, what was his name, Randall William Cook? Or William Randall Cook or something like that? Yes. Who? Randolph what? Scott. Not him. No. <laughs> but uh, it was William Randolph Hearst, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. He actually uh, worked uh, with Peter Jackson a lot on Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, King Kong and stuff like that. He was heavily involved with Gollum. And... Uh, you know how they got uh, the hobbits and a lot of the scenes in Gandalf to look the same or Force look perspective. perspective perspective, right? Which is what they use the little demons. But uh, when I saw the little demons again, I'd seen this movie many times before it clicked for me when I was rewatching this and that uh, m- one of the few things I've actually had published. My f- the first thing I ever had published was a short story called homunculus. And in it, there are lots of little homunculi. And that was published a couple of years ago in an uh, anthology called Fresh Meat. I go back and I re- read it now and I'm just like, okay. Uh, but uh, uh, in watching The Gate, I was like, oh, oh shit. The Gate really influenced me. We had <laughs> breakfast. We had breakfast the morning after you rewatched The Gate. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And the look in your eyes were like, dude, I didn't know how much this movie was in my DNA and how much everything that I loved it it, in terms of your, your uh, just the the feel and themes and, and uh, uh, look of the things in your head that you want to write about all come from this movie. A lot of it, old gods, uh, portals being opened, uh, playing records backwards, uh, mysterious geodes, kids in peril, suburban horror. It is it is kind of crystal a crystallization of 80s horror into one perfect what did horror in the 80s feel like? It felt like the gate. It like, felt like geology gone all wrong. of that is everything kind of thrown together. It's kind of, you know, um the kids in peril, the amblinness of it, the the darkness and evilness, the, the pure evilness of of the demons in this, the heavy metal, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons aspect, the parties, like everything about this, like everything about this movie just screams. It is just it is so like what did the 80s feel like? It felt like the gate. I can guarantee you that the Duffer brothers have seen and love the gate because what? there is no shortage of moments. I was watching this like and I watch I watch this in tandem with showing uh, my fiance Stranger Things for the first time. Ooh. And I, the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, the whole Dungeons and Dragons influence kind of thing and and the metal and the way that kids are like the foul mouth um, realism of these kids really not only is very Amblin, but that that Amblinness also influenced the Duffer Brothers. So this makes a really nice pairing with well, Stranger Things. Stranger Things feels like kind of an idealized, like someone trying to tell you what the 80s were like, mm-hmm. whereas The Gate is like 
no, this is the age. Like, yeah. you know, you know what I think? I, I think one of my favorite images from this movie is so simple. It's Terry listening to that album, dancing on his bed with a rainbow sheet over his head, like, you know, using it as kind of like a cape. Yeah. And it's that's one of the that's one of those aesthetics that like from the 80s that people don't really remember from the 80s, just how much rainbows were prevalent in fucking everything. <laughs> yeah. And, there was a band called Rainbow. That yeah, was a metal. But band. but that it it that looking at that in 1987, it did not seem weird that a kid was dancing around on his bed with a fucking rainbow, whatever towel or sheet or whatever he's got over him. And it's like that is that aesthetic is so very true to the 80s as opposed to you wouldn't really do that while retelling a thing of the 80s now because that doesn't that's not how people remember the 80s, but it's how the 80s were. Yeah. And I want to I want to commend you for bringing up Randall William Cook because I, I missed this, but I'm looking at his catalog and not only are there a number of films that we love, but there's a lot of movies you're like, OK, I can see how that how that and the gate kind of go hand in hand. Uh, for example, cue the winged serpent. Ooh, with all of its stop motion stuff. We have not. On. We have still not done that episode yet. Yeah, this is the take a drink portion of the show. Um, Michael Moriarty being a oh my god, batshit insane. I love Michael Moriarty. At I feel like there is a uh, a parallel between Michael Moriarty and Nicolas Cage, where when they're allowed <laughs> to be crazy, it is perfection. The crazier you allow Michael Moriarty to be, the better the movie, the better the performance. That is. That is very. In fact, I don't. I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast or not. I've talked about this publicly, but during the whole thing with Doctor Strange, um, I ended up having to defend the script versus a bunch of people who wrote drafts in the eighties. Um, and one of those just happens to be a little filmmaker who made Cue the Winged Serpent and the stuff. Larry Cohen. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was a script. There is a Doctor Strange script written by Larry Cohen in 1985 or 86. And I read it. And you know, you know who I fucking saw in my head is his Doctor Strange. Michael Moriarty. It was Michael Moriarty <laughs> Doctor Strange in my head. And I'm like, I kind of wish this batshit Larry Cohen version fucking existed with Michael Moriarty as Doctor Stephen Strange. What's, what's the Doctor Strange mantra? The the one that or he thought was a mantra that was a Wi-Fi password? Oh, Shambhala. Shambhala. Like, I just imagine Michael Moriarty trying to mouth fart out the word Shambhala. I, oh my God, I am all kinds of on board. For oh, that. oh, dude, his his version's so crazy. Doctor Strange doesn't even lose his hands in a car accident. A building collapses on him and crushes his hand. Like, he literally just, like, comic books, fuck the comic books. I'm just going to make a movie about a wizard. His mantra is Quetzalcoatl. Um, <laughs> so, Ghostbusters, it, he specifically worked on the dimensional animation effects. And I'm like, yeah, all the smoke coming out oh, yeah. of the top of the firehouse. He worked on Fright Night. I'm like, yeah, I can see yep. the, the monsters yeah. in there. Uh, Poltergeist 2, he worked mm. on with one of the creepiest monsters in film history. Which, which Poltergeist one? Poltergeist 2, the tequila worm. Oh, God, yes. Uh, and then also he worked on like, some of the Puppet Master movies. And I'm like, yep, forced perspective. Like, there's, I start looking at his, his catalog and I'm like, yeah, I can see all the things that well equipped him or the things that he had a talent for that made this, made the gate so good. Um, so yeah, and, and like you said, working with uh, the Lord of the Rings and all the forced perspective on that, like all of this makes sense. 
Like his entire catalog just kind of comes together really beautifully. But yeah, that scene where Terry falls into the hole and those things just keep coming out and like one pops up over his shoulder and bites him and the others are like pulling it. It's like a really twisted version of Gulliver's Travels all of a sudden where they're like all working together to try and pull him back into the hole. And I'm just like, get this kid out of there because this this is not a place anyone wants to be. This And, and they make these things that should be silly really creepy. Like, remember when one of those small things gets, like, just smashed and then... It just keeps... Why does it keep... What is it doing? It's flailing and screaming and flailing and screaming. Oh, I'm talking about a different one. I'm talking about the one where it bursts apart into a pile of sperm that then crawls back under the door. Yeah. That that image, more than anything (laughs) else, stuck with me for that Oh, it's so grody. Yeah. It's just... It's like, there's no other word but grody. Like, it's not gross. It's just... There's something about it that makes your skin crawl in the best way. It's so so well done. Yeah. And like when they they slam one of the things' arm in the door, door, and it comes off and it kind of hits That's what it is. That's the one that turns in all the sperm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let's also talk about, uh, let's jump ahead to, I, I, what I love about this movie is it has this sort of, also the other Amblin connection is that all of these demons look like they're made of extra skin from the ball sack of E.T. So there's that <laughs> connection as well. But the scene, we jump ahead to, as we talked about, Chekhov's construction Does worker. Does E.T. have a ball yeah. sack? Huge. And if he does... Oh, did I just open a gate? Was it sack. buried in the desert in Tucson? I just opened a gate. I wish I hadn't. It uh, it glowed. <laughs> I'll be touching right here. <laughs> yeah, I really wish I hadn't said that. Um, so the construction worker... Yeah, all of a sudden you're seeing something else glowing, and it's really fucking with you. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you are so conflicted. I am. Cause Put the nitro back in the box. <laughs> the box Put, nitro. Put the Reese's back in the box. Um, yeah. <laughs> the fucker. Oh, yes. The construction worker. Because <laughs> one of the things this movie does is it pulls these uh, switcheroos on the audience where it, the audience thinks everything is all wrapped up. And then all of a sudden the fucking zombie construction worker yeah. comes out of the wall. Then it gets cranked up to 11. And it's, I mean, the whole thing has really got this, uh, it, I mean, it kicks off with a dream, but it really feels very dreamlike. And a lot of that's the fog and the neon and everything. But uh, there are all these like disparate elements that don't really make a lot of sense. Well, yeah, I mean, he comes out of the wall, he pulls Terry into the wall, and then the wall patches itself up. So it's just like you're you're confused about where the boundaries of reality are within yeah. this house. And you're supposed to be. I mean, right down to the the climax of this movie, how does he defeat the demon? He's still not entirely sure. He just kind of fucking shoots a rocket at it, and it goes inside, and it blows up, and there you are. Well, so when Brian was texting me, hey, do you want to be on for the gate, like a month ago or whatever, I texted him back. I was like, love and light. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure Brian was just like, okay, I don't know what that means. It it had been a while since I'd seen it. I'm just like, sure, those things are both good. Let's go with that. No, but I love the way that that's built up because one of the other heartfelt moments of this movie is the relationship between Glenn and his sister. Al. Yeah, his sister Al. Because early on, you feel like they're two completely different people. They've grown apart. But the movie gives you all of these breadcrumbs leading to the relationship they used to have. They were both really into model rockets. They And not that they had a shared interest, but it was a thing that bonded them together. something that they did together. And halfway through the movie, she comes back from the mall. And throughout the whole movie, she's hanging out with her friends. He seems to be in the way. No, you can't call mom and dad. Shut up. Go to your room, whatever. 
And she comes back from the mall with her friends and she spent her money on a model rocket for the two of them. To, and it's such a sweet moment. And so I feel like that plays really nicely into how he actually defeats the well, giant oh, demon. Ultimately, I feel like that's kind of the whole point of this. And that's why I brought it up is the the physical rules of the demons aren't really as important in this film as the emotional relationship with the demons and the emotional relationship of what's really this movie's really about. This movie is a fractured suburbia story. You know, this movie is a story about two fucked up young kids in suburbia, like trying to get by who are really normal because everybody's kind of like that. But you know, this is, this is a writer working through his bullshit of feeling that his life is over and just kind of writing about his childhood and putting demons as a literal representation of the bullshit that he dealt with in his childhood. And so I feel like none of those rules are really essential because what the demons in this movie are really doing is they're everything they do tries to play at the fears and concerns of these suburban kids to try to break them apart and fracture their own relationships and turn them on each other uh, in a sense and have them weaken to the point that the demons win. So I don't think that they're, needs to be concrete rules in this movie. And I think that's why things like the rocket work because the rocket is an expression of love between him and his sister and firing that at the demons between them is exactly the fucking point of the rocket. And I feel like that's what's so kind of fucking cool about this weird little movie is there really is so much personal shit just kind of laid out in this film that otherwise feels like a throwaway midnight movie. Well, and the giant demon that comes out of the floor, I mean, that's your thank goodness you did cue the winged serpent and then prepared you for this claymation moment because it's it's a really great stop motion and it's, it's monster. And it the monsters in this movie don't look like anything else. Like almost yeah. every movie And they're not like super elaborate, right? Yeah. No. No, like when we talk about like the iconic movie monsters, you can talk about the origins and the histories of them and how well this is kind of like this and this is borrowed from this. And, you know, you see a lot of people like Guillermo del Toro sit down with his guys and and say, Well, I'm really inspired by this piece of artwork and this and this leads to this, and you get cool stuff, but you can trace the origins of it. This is a movie where it's like this shit came out of some dude's head and doesn't look like anything fucking else. And the minute you see those little dudes, you go, oh, that's fucking gay. Yeah. Like there's just you you see the gate yeah. once and 30 years later, you remember those little fucking men and it weirds you the fuck out. And it is such an original, fresh monster. Yeah. And I love that. And, and also, Randall William Cook worked on uh, The Thing. Yeah. John Carpenter's The Thing. So, I mean, again, you have... Also a decent movie. Also know. a decent movie where there's monsters, but they're specifically Just monsters... decent. That, decent. That take on the form of people, and you don't know. So, it's like, all of these little things come together. It's like, I can totally see why he's working on this movie, and why it, this is right in his wheelhouse. And it's such... It's just... It really is one of those culmination films, and it's... It's, um, it's interesting, because I watched this... In a, I had a big run where I had an entire night to catch up on movies for podcasts and stuff. And I watched a bunch of Everett DeRoche movies along with The Gate and, and RoboCop. And all these movies just kind of fell together as movies. Like RoboCop is such an iconic movie of this era. Um, and then you watch these Everett DeRoche movies and, and The Gate with the Everett DeRoche movies. Everett DeRoche made movies that were very 
indicative of the era, but always their own and just so batshit crazy that it was clear he wasn't like he's only got one movie that I would say, well, that's a knockoff of this. And that's Razorback, which we've talked about, which is uh, real quick knockoff of Jaws. Oh, it's okay. Jaws it's of the Austra- fucking boar. It's Australia's Jaws. Except yeah. it's Jaws of the fucking boar and a hallucinatory mushroom sequence halfway through, which is fucking amazing. And <laughs> yeah. the, and and Razorback is it's awesome. Like, it's like Awake and Fright meets Jaws. Yes, yes that is exactly what also, it is. Also, you're pronouncing the title wrong. It's Razorback. Razorback. <laughs> um, uh, but so you've got, you know, he made these movies that that just pull upon so much of the era, but no other film is like it and that's the gate and i felt like like that's what really kind of like keyed me into this is there's no other movie in the 80s that you could say well the gate is like this so you can go well the gate is kind of like monster squad and it's like no. well, yeah but monster squad is very tongue in cheek about it yeah and- but we are sitting here debating whether et has nards so if nothing else <laughs> monster squad inspired that conversation and it's, it's kind of like trick or treat except trick or treat the heavy metal is the villain and not the exposition uh, there's no movie that like the closest you can get is still not even close. And that's like Terror Vision because, oh, ugh. which Terror Vision is awful. I hate Terror Vision. I, I know several Me of you three. out there probably really like Terror Vision, but it's like the, four people just turned off the podcast like, fuck these guys. Yeah, Terror Vision is genius and they don't <laughs> recognize it. But no, it's the same kind of you open a portal where the and everybody's stuck in the house and the shit's coming after them. That's exactly what this movie is. It's why I, the, in my head, Terror Vision is the low the low res, um, uh, no talent version of the gate. That's the closest you get. But even that's like played for laughs. They don't play this for laughs. They no, play this no. as fucking terrifying. They wanted to scare us kids and boy, howdy did they? I was just thinking they, no one actually, you don't see anyone leave. I mean, you see people leave the house, but you don't see outside of the house really to the point that I'm like, you could do a stage production of the gate. His initial draft as the writer has talked about, um, uh, the things get out into the neighborhood and start murdering people in their houses. And like, it gets brutal and bloody. Like he takes over the town. He talks about how, like he was in a dark place, like going through a divorce and everything. Well, yeah, his career was over. Like he wasn't making movies. Like he had, he got his shot. He had his shot and made a mainstream movie. And at this point, think about this. This is the mid eighties. So at the mid eighties, this kid who was on his fucking first feature film that he was directing is now Michael J. Fucking Fox. (laughs) Yeah is that one of the biggest stars in the world and he can't get an indie movie off the ground in fucking New York City, the hub of indie films. Like his, he's living with his parents in the 80s, the big boisterous coke doing fucking 80s where at 30 years old, you should either be doing coke as a villain somewhere or you should be making your fucking feature films and he's living at home. Or doing coke as a hero somewhere because it was the 80s on both sides. It was the the 80s on both sides of the road. Uh, But yeah, it is, it's one of those things where he was just in such a dark place he wanted to kind of cathartically take it all out and instead wrote what i think is his masterpiece oh for sure i do want to talk about one thing that dates the movie to a troubling degree okay and that and again here's a monster squad connection troubling use of the f-word and i'm not talking about fuck oh well yeah but that's oh yeah that's the 80s period like that is like 
Bill I, and Ted's bogus or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure does yeah. that. But yeah. I mean, it's especially troubling when a child says it to another child. And we're talking about the uh, homosexual slur. Yes. yes, and it was it was so pervasive. In fact, eighties all over just had a problem with that, in which they watched three movies in a row one night. Uh, and all of them had abusive use of that language. Like one of them was um, Northern Territory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's it's fucking. Um, yeah, we listen to that show. Yeah, it's John uh, uh, Belushi. Yeah, John Belushi dropping that, and to a disturbing degree. And it's like, dude, what is like that? This is this is one of those things that in the that going back and watching eighties films is becoming harder and harder. Well, and it's especially weird because all of the other insults that get bandied about in this movie feel very much like children would come. Like Glenn says to one of the friends at one point, "Suck my nose till my face caves in," and it's just like. That's really silly. Like they just feel like really goofy, and then it, then they just drop that. Well, it's you know? one of the it's as I've argued for a couple of years. Like for millennials, there are only four major swears, um, and it's that f bomb. You know, the second f bomb is what it's called. The c word, um, the r word, and uh, the n word, and that those Echo are wafers? those are yes, those. those are the four words that millennial to millennials you are not allowed to say. Uh, those are the four dirty words because every other word, you know, like fuck, shit, asshole, we kind of ran into the ground. And, and uh, we strive to do every week on junk foods. Uh, we don't even, we, I have to ask when I go on other podcasts, I'm like, when are you swearing? Like, yeah. do I have to pay attention? And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's oh, like, I do that every fuck time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's nice that you guys ask. I don't. Yeah, no, I, I because I, I assume that if you've invited me onto your podcast, you know <laughs> the F bomb's going to come out. It's a agreement that you are you're down for whatever is going to spew forth in my filthy yeah. mouth. But They're you know like, what? Well, we got we got Cargill on here, so uh, we're gonna have to age gate this one. <laughs> Dormammu, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Why is that, that alone? I kind of, I kind of wish that was. I wish I'd written a draft like that where it was just Dormammu. What the fuck? I'm Get the fuck out here! Like it's kind of like there's actually. I swear to God, there are drafts in existence of uh, that I sent to the studios of uh, the second Sinister movie called Sinister Two: Electric Bagul, and <laughs> that was the title of the script because I was just like, fuck it. Um, and starring he, the dice as Doctor Stephen Strange. Hey, what the fuck, Dormammu? <laughs> hey, yo. So uh, I got my tongue up this. Demon's ass. There's Larry Cohen's Doctor Strange. <laughs> Still did a better job than Michael Moriarty. <laughs> Michael Moriarty's just staring no. at Dormammu going, I don't know. What? He, no, he's Mordo. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Michael Moriarty's Mordo might be, Michael Mordo Artie might actually be better than his Doctor Strange. Michael Mordo <laughs> and then And then you bring in the other universe where Jeffrey Combs is Doctor Strange. So Jeffrey Combs is Doctor Strange and Michael Moriarty is Mordo. The, the one where they didn't lose the rights yes. and got to finish up. What, what was that one called again? Doctor Mordred. He worked, uh, the uh, William Randall, Randall Cook or whatever worked on that. As well. Oh, oh, you know what he did? Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, I'll tell you what he did. I'll bet he did the fucking dinosaur fight at the end. Oh, the dinosaur bone fight uh, went out. Yep. Question without question. That's because yep, yep. that's the only great part of that movie. That's the best part of that movie. From like, the principal animator of Laser Blast, so I absolutely <laughs> believe that he did the dinosaur fight at the end of Motherfucking Doctor Mordred. That uh, dinosaur fight, Doctor Mordred, is worth the price of admission. Like 
period. Have you guys, have you guys done right that? It's right there in front of me, and I missed it. <laughs> oh, my God, Brian. Dr. Mordred. Yeah, yeah, we actually did an episode on Dr. Mordred. Like last year, right? Uh, uh, yeah, we did, yeah. we did a doctor month uh, to celebrate Dr. Strange. because it it's a it's, Doctor was the name of that It's show. a little thing that I'm proud of, so we did a, we did a Mr. Doctor month. You didn't month. work on Dr. Mordred? Oh, you're proud of the... Okay, sorry. Yeah, I get yeah, it. I, I, I put the pieces together. Yeah. I, I got it now. Although there's part of me that wishes, as a kid, I had PA'd on Dr. Mordred. <laughs> Because then you get it, then you end up with a great story like like uh, like Brian Singer. You know what Brian Singer's first PA job was, right? Street trash. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. he PA'd on Street Trash. I didn't like, know think that. about that. Like, Street Trash is a fucked up little movie. Yeah, and it's kind of like that. It's like a, one of the guys I worked with, uh, uh, one of the producers on uh, Doctor Strange, PA'd on. <laughs> it, I'm sorry, it just sounds like you're saying peed on these movies every time well, you say they PA'd on it. PA'd. Uh, um, he he PA'd on a little movie called movie. Can't Stop the Music. Oh, that was his yeah. first gig in Hollywood. Was PAing on Can't Stop the Music. You and know so, the golden you years know, of Hollywood when you could. You PA know, I film. asked him stories about what it was like working on that film, and boy, howdy, did he tell me. I'm I'm uh, okay. Well, that, not, <laughs> not not now, not now, not now. <laughs> with the mics on. There's some there's some stories in there that I shouldn't tell with the mics I'm, on. I'm making a note to watch Street Trash because I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, and hey, while you're at it, Neon Maniacs. Oh, Neon Maniacs. I may have your copy of Neon Maniacs. No, you my... finally gave it back to me. Did I? Okay. After several after several months of you holding on to a movie that you did not like, that we did not end up covering for this show, you were like, oh, I guess you can have this back. I love Neon Maniacs. Yeah, I, I, I want it it's to. I, I want to so bad. You've been bad. So that brings us to the junk food pairing. And this one, I, I discovered this on the internet, and this thing is... Fantastic! It's a Korean street food called the Demon Club Hot Dog. And the basic idea is that it's a corn dog with French fries in the batter. So, Oh, dear God, they made this for you. What you end up with is this unholy abomination of like... Potato and hot dog. They're like jagged carb shards that are protecting the meaty core of the, of the corn dog. I'm so into it. Right? It's it's if, if that's not a delicacy of the dark gods beneath the earth, I don't know what is. And it's really convenient that they just went, oh, how about we stick that heart attack on a stick for you? Uh, from the people who brought you Gundam style. Yes. Oh, my God. And I'm like, I want to go to Korea right now and have myself a Demon Club hot Gangnam dog. Gangnam style. I know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I waiting for why. somebody to correct me, and it just took too long, oh, and I the joke was... I didn't care enough. I, I was just oh, like... Oh, Gundam style. I was like, oh, slip of the tongue. I'm sure he knows, but... but. <laughs> But now I'm like, why does that video not exist? Gundam style. Why I think that it, because it, I'm pretty sure it does. Giant robot. Oh, but open oh, oh, Gundam oh. style. So there's another reason I thought, and it's funny that this kind of went that way in our conversation. The other reason I thought this would be a good pairing is that um, the movie did remind me very much of Monster Squad with, you know, foul mouth preteens are taking on supernatural forces of evil. There's real stakes, fantastic effects. Very few adults are, are, represented in the outcome like they are, are responsible for putting the supernatural forces back at bay um so if they're the monster squad you could call the three kids in this movie the demon club so demon club hot dog with its french fry batter just i'm like yes like that's unholy and i want to ha eat it right now 
So if, if we ever go to Korea, the first thing we're going to do is get arrested. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to have a Demon Club hot dog. And we are talking about South Korea, right? Oh, well, absolutely. Because <laughs> this mythical trip to Korea really kind of frightens me if it's the other I, way. I still like, I like, oh, I, was like, yeah, I feel like you're going to say, oh, no, my buddy Dennis can get us in. He's friends with the he's friends with the guy who runs it. <laughs> Yeah, um, I kind of like. I kind of like. Don't want to end up on Dennis Rodman's plane going to to hang out with Kim Jong Un because you'd have to watch Double Team like fifty times. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, wait, where is the wait? Where is the bad part of that? Double Team. That's Choi Hawk's movie, right? That's that's Jean Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman by by Choi Hawk, right? Is it really? Is it really? I'm pretty certain oh, he did Fred. Double Team. You did yeah, that, actually. Yeah. yeah, no, all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, I need no, to respect all of a sudden the filmmaker. I feel terribly bad for him because that is like I we just identified Judy Hark's uh, nadir right there. Yeah, did it. but first of all, kind of keep in mind that this is what we did to all of our Asian imports. Once everybody in Hollywood realized how many of us nerds were going to uh, Korean video stores to get all of these bootlegs. Yep. They were like, maybe yep. we should release these movies. And they did. And we went and saw them and they're like, holy shit, maybe we should make movies with them. And then we made stuff like double team. No, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to do a whole, hard target and Freddie versus Jason. We're going to do a whole month called the great fall of China, where we talk about Chinese directors, worst movies. We will talk about what, double worst, team worst, uh, Western movies. Well, yes, we'll yeah. talk about that. We'll talk about, um, we'll talk about, uh, Mission uh, Impossible 2. No. Yep, Choi Hawk. Choi Hawk no, did double I was, team. I was actually going to say Blackjack for John Woo, which is the movie where Dolph Lundgren's afraid of the color white. I will say about double team. Oh, of course you will. There the is, mic is on. If I remember correctly, that's the movie where one of the characters gets a knife through the foot and then starts fighting with the foot, trying yeah. to stab someone with the knife. Uh, I just remember, and it would be it'd be an easy joke. Which was prepare. kind of like one of those. It was went down as one of the ten greatest action scenes of the nineties. I never saw a double team because I saw the poster and I was it's, like, "It's really not." It's I, I, I'm I'm the one defending it here, which seems weird, but uh, because it seems more like a Brian defense than me. But there are moments in that movie that are worth it. But the movie overall is everything that's wrong with 90s movies and everything wrong with both Dennis Rodman and J, uh, JCVD at the time. I was watching. I was like 16 or 17 when it came out. I remember seeing the poster and just going like. You were all fucking watching that. No, no, no. No, it was. I, I'm telling you right now, it came out in 97. You were 22 years old. 97? Yeah. Oh, I sure shit wouldn't watch it then. <laughs> it would make a, a great junk food cinema entry because the pairing would be so easy. Because at one point, they're literally saved by a fucking Pepsi machine. They are. Like the big climactic explosion, our heroes are saved by a Pepsi machine after they fight a tiger. I may be coming around on us doing an episode on this. <laughs> I'm talking about. You may have. You, you, you're really selling yourself. Fuck. Fuck. Spoiler. Uh, I hate it when, when a movie outsmarts me, especially when it's double team. Thanks so much for joining us this week on Junk Food Cinema, and I mean that especially to our guests. You just got Mr. double teamed. I, <laughs> by JCVD and Dennis Rodman. Like a pair of Chinese finger cuffs. They Eiffel Tower to you, my friend. <sighs> 
I'm mad because I can't argue with it. <laughs> Thanks, Jason, for being on the show was what I was about to say. Murphy, thank that. you for coming by. Glad to be here. Why don't you pimp your shit right pimpin', now? What do you uh, have pimpin to pimp to the people? Pimpin'. Every Friday on YouTube.com forward slash Modern Rogue, I am on the Modern Rogue. That's my show with Brian Brushwood, uh, as heard on the Junk Food Cinema RoboCop episode. Yes. Which which is next week, right? It is next week. So next week, you'll, you yeah. will hear, we've got both Modern Rogues. We did it. We did it. We got them together. See, the thing Yay. is, is uh, somebody <laughs> had a kid, and so we're recording Who? two episodes at a time so that he can... Be with his kid. Yeah. So we've moved off our regular weekly schedule to doubling up on episodes. So if you say double one more time, <laughs> Murphy so, is going to bring that fucking movie. So we again. just we just got double teamed no! by Jason Murphy and Brian Brushwood, the modern rogues. I did it to myself, and I have to. You said that. You, I was in the middle of doing it, and you like just you just bent over and spread your cheeks and said, "Give me all eighty-seven inches," and. Uh, <laughs> You had to leave the mic going. You had to record yeah, that section, hey, didn't you? That's, uh, that's for patrons. The bonus is hey, all 87. The bonus is a bonus this Future week. Brian, that's an edit point. Um, bonus. Future Brian. Oh, God damn it, Murphy. <laughs> What what is happening to me? Has uh, the, the, what's happening is we opened up Scotch this uh, week. Damn it! No, it's good. It's all it's all you know. What? It's all very good. Cargill, where can people find you on the interweb? You can find me on Twitter at Massaworm M A S S A W Y R M or on Facebook Facebook.com slash Massaworm. Also, also since it is now you know it's happening, we're in the zone. You're going to hear about this for a few months, but I'm going to. You know, uh, this is the one thing I'm going to do. I've got a new book coming out. I wrote a book. Yeah. It's called Sea of Rest. Jason has actually read it. It's good. Uh, it's uh, very good. Thank you. Jason's uh, actually on Reddit. Wait, what did you say? Sorry. <laughs> no, it is. Uh, it's called Sea of Rust. It comes out September 5th, I believe, is the day release date. Uh, I'm really proud of it. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, it is junky as it gets. It's a post-apocalyptic robot Western. Um, I, uh, I would, you can find it wherever you buy books, pre-order it on Amazon, on from Barnes and Noble, or go to your local bookstore if you have a physical bookstore and ask them and buy it through them. Or get Amazon Prime and then go to Comic-Con HQ and then within there, there's some ancient Sanskrit that you have to read. And if you do that and you roll a geode over your balls and then you watch E.T. backwards. And you listen to a Sacrifix record. You, you listen to a Sacrifix record and you realize that there are no wimps, no false metal. The book shows up at your door. And if you watch Dr. Mordred backwards. Yes, yes, it's true. It's actually a <laughs> You lot could better. also find the link to buy it. Um, that, that but yes, awesome. please, thank you guys. It's a uh, damn good book. Seriously, I wrote it. I, I I sat down to write it, and I'm like, you know, this is for my the, the people that listen to my podcast. This is like not in, in a, I, I, and I don't mean that in a sucking your dick sort of way. I mean, uh, you know what? I don't know if anybody's going to get this, but these guys would get this. This gang would get this. So I hope you guys enjoy Sea of Rust. Um so yeah nice and come on out if you're anywhere near omaha nebraska big announcement we are actually going to be appearing at the omaha alamo draft house on august 12th for junk food cinema live junk food cinema live really we are hosting a quartet of movies uh out there uh, junkie action movies that are being programmed there uh being kept close to the vest right now they're a surprise but we will be there on saturday Hosting the whole thing, doing uh, mini episodes in between every movie. Omaha? In Omaha. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, dude, so the weird. fucking heartland, the breadbasket motherfucker. Somewhere in middle America. Like yep. the uh, it's, you, could you, where we're going to talk about, about taking all 87 inches. Could, could you think of a more central place where people could hop on a highway and drive and watch four movies with us? 
Uh, what do you know? What the can you say what the movies? No, we can't. No, because we're not allowed. It, it's actually it's one of those weird legal things. It's why whenever oh. they program those days, yeah, where it's like they can't advertise the movies or else they have to get the studios involved, and right. the studios can then throw their their weight around and say, well, we don't want to show this movie with that. Well, it's like we can show whatever we want as long as what we're advertising is come out to see Brian and Cargill, and we'll show you movies yeah. at the same time. It's, are you guys programming this as well? Half Part of it. it. Yeah, we're okay. they let us. Okay. They told us two of the movies. And then we program two movies in addition. Oh, cool! And there might be a guest, who, uh, filmmaking guest from those movies that come out too. So we can't. You know, but we don't know. We don't know. But there will be junk food cinema T-shirts. I know. I've seen a, a proof of it. Looks great. So come on out to that. I'll actually have a T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, or if you That's live really cool guys, thank you very much. Thank if you. you live in the Austin area, the weekend before, which is August fifth, on that Saturday, we will be at ArmadilloCon right here in Austin, Texas, doing Junk Food Live at the Omni Hotel downtown. I and didn't know you were going to be. At, I mean, I knew he was going to be at yeah. that. I didn't know you guys. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. going to do it. They, in fact, they asked the uh, people who are involved asked me about it tonight if we would do a Junk Food Cinema Live from there. And if you just can't get to either of those, you can find me in Minneapolis at Convergence after Fourth of July weekend, starting on July fifth. You can find me in Hawaii in Honolulu for Honolulu Comic Con at the end of July or you can come to Atlanta, Georgia and see me at Dragon Con. I'll be at Armadillo Con just hanging out. <laughs> in like the bar with me yeah, drinking scotch. To the Omni Bar yeah. every weekend. That's uh, not yeah. really... It's like, a, it's like less than a mile from my house so <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> come to the drunk, the Surly Drunkards Convention at the Omni Hotel every, every time Jason's and there. And you'll find him on Cargill's porch um, drinking also, scotch and smoking cigars. As anyone should do. So we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. And uh, thank you again for listening. And I just want to say one more time, even though it's not from this movie, no wimps and no false metal. No false metal. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.